Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for being with us this week. And we're going to dedicate the bulk of our program this time to a recent conversation I had with Danielle Metz, DoD's top official for enterprise IT, on exactly where the department's going with cloud computing, or to be more precise, enterprise-scale cloud computing. As most of our audience knows by this point, the Pentagon canceled its controversial single-vendor Jedi cloud contract last year. Its replacement is JWCC, a multiple-vendor approach that's going to involve Amazon, Microsoft, Oracle, and Google. But the way DoD is going to allocate that work and have those companies compete for task orders is pretty novel. If you want to be cynical about it, you could say it looks like it's engineered to make the whole thing immune to bid protests. But whether or not that's the intention, it does look like the end result is going to be to get task orders issued quickly, which is obviously really, really important in its own right for what the Pentagon's trying to do with Enterprise Cloud. If any of this sounds familiar, I wrote about my conversation with Ms. Metz just before the holidays for federalnewsnetwork.com in a fair amount of detail. But I still think this interview is still the most comprehensive public explanation DOD has given up until this point about what it's actually up to with JWCC. So I wanted to present the whole thing for our listeners here as well. So without further ado, my conversation with Danielle Metz, the Deputy DOD Chief Information Officer for Information Enterprise. Ms. Metz, thank you very much for doing this. And I, I want to spend most of our time today talking about how the JWCC contract is actually going to work once awards are actually made. But let's let's start with some big picture stuff because the, the department has published quite a, or had published quite a bit of documentation on JEDI, relatively little so far on JWCC. I think there's really only five pages out there at this point. So start us off, if you would, by talking a bit about how the department's views of enterprise cloud, its requirements for enterprise cloud, its understanding of the market has changed over these last three years. Yeah, absolutely. So I think with JEDI, what you saw was the department's need to have an enterprise uh, cloud infrastructure contract in place. And we wanted to be able to partner with one vendor and have one cloud so that we could become, the department could become more cloud conversant, not only on the acquisition, contracting, identification of dollars for services, but also the technical and operational processes as well. and that was really the overarching strategy, the strategic thinking and going about JEDI with one cloud, um, one vendor approach. And I think the other thing too was um, back in 2017 when we envisioned JEDI, uh, the cloud service providers weren't as technically savvy as they are today in terms of data portability. And so the ability to move from different types of cloud. So it really constrained the department's ability to entertain multiple clouds um, with the services that we were wanting to achieve from unclassified all the way to top secret and extending that out to the tactical edge. And so there was a lot of uh, advocacy that we needed to do a JEDI. So I think that was really what you were seeing in the literature and documentation that was being published as we were describing the need for JEDI. I think that's very well established now. I think uh, how JEDI came to an end is also very well established in terms of the litigation. And also, what's also very um, well established is that the department still has an urgent unmet need um, for cloud services infrastructure um, from unclassified to top secret, uh, cross-domain solutions so you can move data through those uh, echelons and then to the tactical edge. 
that is still on record. We still don't have it. And with Secretary Austin and Secretary Hicks stating joint all domain C2 and AI and data acceleration, those key components require the need for the department to have cloud infrastructure and services. So with JWCC or the joint warfighting cloud capability, this is really tackling um, that urgent unmet need in a very quick manner. Uh, and the way that we chose to go about that is an acquisition strategy that would do direct solicitations and limiting those direct solicitations to the five US-based hyperscale uh, cloud service providers. So we weren't going to do a full and open competition, which is what we did with JEDI, uh, but the department is committed to doing full and open competition. And as part of our overarching cloud strategy approach, once we have the JWCC uh, contract awards, uh, a year from that, we would uh, embark on our open market research. And it would not uh, exclude the CSPs. It would be for any company that can meet the department's requirements. And so that, in effect, it would create the department's cloud marketplace commensurate to what the IC has with their C2E. So JWCC is in some ways a bridge to whatever you're going to do a year later. That's correct. And so JWCC is really uh, the way that we have the the contract established or will have established is a three-year base with two one-year option years. And the reason why we wanted to be able to have three years is because it, we knew it was going to um, take uh, a while for us to be able to onboard uh, the combatant commands and military services and defense agencies and build activities to start uh, using the JWCC, going through the automating uh, provisioning tool, which we call AT-AT, to be able to initiate um, task orders. And the idea of JWCC is once we have contract awards, there are individual awards to, um, to those uh, CSPs that receive those awards. And so those task orders are competed each and every time. And the mission owner's requirements drive how the task order is going to be initiated, and then the competition takes place at the task order level. All right, let's dig into that a little bit because I'm, I'm a bit confused on that's how that's going to work. My understanding from the pre-solicitation notice back in the summer was that the intent was to award separate IDIQs to each vendor, which is not the traditional way you would do it if you were going to do competition at the task order level. So you're saying each time the department or a military service has a requirement for cloud services, it will be competed across all of those four IDIQs? So it is. The JWCC is, you have it right, an IDIQ. And then we will have individual contracts with the CSSPs. And the competition takes place at the task order level. And this is exactly what the C2E is uh, achieving with how they're going to do uh, their execution of task orders as well. The difference for, uh, for the department and what we're working right now on is typically something like that takes 30 to 45 days. That is unsatisfactory. And we are working very creatively within the bounds of FAR and DFAR to be able to make that into five to 10 days. And so that's the active work that's taking place now. The JWCC Program Management Office, uh, which is DISA's uh, hosting and uh, compute center, also known as the HACK, partnered with uh, WHSAD and the acquisition lawyers are working through how we're going to be able to, to execute those task orders through the automated um, provisioning tool of AT-AT and to be able to execute those task orders within days instead of the typical 30 to 45 days. 
That's very interesting. I, I, I just want to go back one beat and make sure that you didn't misspeak when you said one contract. There are there are actually four different IDI IQ contracts That's issued correct. to each so company. You, okay. That's that is correct. Okay. I know a lot of this is probably still TBD, but can you say anything more about how that rapid competition process would actually work? I mean, does a company is a company required to submit a proposal every time there's a new requirement? No. So the to take a step back, as you know, we did direct solicitations to the four CSPs back November nineteenth, and so right now they're the ones that are providing their proposals to the request for proposal and PWS that we submitted as part of our acquisition package that went to them. Uh, they will be sending their proposals to the government uh, in the next uh, month or so, and. Based on the government's um, assessment of those proposals and engagements with uh, the vendors, the government will make the determination as to which would receive the direct contract award. So these are individual source, sole source, um, but it's not one. It's right. right now many. Most four could be less than. And so once those contracts are awarded, that's the IDIQ. And then based on that is the catalogs that will be created and then the purchasing um, or uh, the task order execution through that automating provisioning tool. Okay. So there, so the sense in which it's a competition is, tell me if I'm making too much of a logical leap here, all of the company's prices and capabilities are sort of pre-populated into this DISA is, system. And then it's almost an automated competition where the government determines which company or combination of companies' capabilities are going to suit the requirement. Is that something about right as far as how this is going to look? Yeah, that's correct. And I think the only um, nuance that I'll stress is it's the mission owner's requirements that would determine how that task order is going to be competed and then how it's going to be satisfied by the companies that are on that um, on the contract. Got it. So just to be super clear, at the task order level, when those competitions happen, there's there's no more interaction with the vendor where they get to come in and make an argument about how why we think our service offering is going to do the job better here, just because that would take a lot of time. That's correct. So that's that's the way that's the vision of how we want to be able to execute this. Are, are, are you aware of any other government procurement that's actually worked that way with those kinds of task order competitions? Or is this, uh, are, you, are you innovating here? This is very, uh, this is very revolutionary. Um, and I think that this shows the commitment to the department in terms of wanting to transform our business processes so that we can get the effect of um, capabilities quicker to our warfighter. Let's let's talk about how you're going to ensure fair and reasonable prices over the life of the contract. If, if it, let's say, you... Ex- exercise all your options and the thing goes out for three years. Are the prices that are set in these direct awards relatively static? How do you make sure that the prices DOD pays are, you know, commensurate with the commercial marketplace over time? Yeah, so that's part of the the requirements that are within uh, the, the PWS is that we want to have commercial parity and that the inspirations of having task orders being competed at the task order level is to inspire that uh, that competition. In terms of the specifics for the pricing, um, those are going to be negotiated within the, the terms of the FAR. And anything further than that is going to be really difficult for me to get into with the specifics just sure. because of where we are in the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Um I want to get a little bit more clarity on what happens after this uh, during these option periods. So it's one year after the contract awards. You may do a competition or you definitely will do a competition at that point. 
We will, so one year from the JWCC contract being awarded, we would initiate our market research for a fair and open competition to establish a DoD marketplace. And unlike what we did in JWCC, we would not exclude it to just be the US-based um, CSPs. The four vendors who will have played up to that point are gonna have a pretty serious incumbent advantage at that point, will they not? I mean, how are you thinking ahead at this point about how you make sure that really is a fair and open competition? And realistically, what other companies and kinds of capabilities beyond the hyperscale CSPs would become part of JWCC? Are they other ancillary services or integration services? What's what's the long-term vision there? Yeah, so I think you know that um, the department has uh, at least 13 what I'll call enterprise cloud uh, contracts, and they're all through uh, integrators. And so those, we have them today. So the Air Force has Cloud One, uh, the Navy has their own contract, Army just stood up theirs. Um, so those will continue to, to go forward. And that body of work, um, the lessons learned from that, the cloud conversancy and cloud fluency that's coming from those current contracts will continue and then be folded into um, JWCC if the services deemed that, you know, the JWCC meets uh, their requirements. We're not mandating JWCC. This is really for the combatant commands and the, um, the, the DAFAs first. And then for those uh, military services who have current cloud contracts that may not have an aisle six or secret, a top secret or a tactical edge, they can use JWCC because we will have those services. So I think that also it would be kind of short-sighted for me to say that there's not going to be another company out there that can meet the requirements of, uh, of the department. Because right now, um, so much can change within a year or two years from when we start the, the open uh, the, the market research. Um, and that's what we want to be able to do. We want to be able to preserve that trade space um, for that innovation and not try to preclude um, anything. And I think but really what we wanted for JWCC uh, was twofold. And you were correct in saying it, it is serving as a bridge. We know we have an urgent unmet need. We know we need to have capabilities out to the forces. Uh, we know we don't have that. And we know that we are well behind the power curve. So how do we go about making sure that we have capability at the, the speed and alacrity that we need that was the vision of, of JWCC and the strategy that we have, recognizing extreme long-term the, the importance of once we have that cloud fluency um, from acquisition, funding, um, the technical um, expertise as well, how are we going to operate this? How are we going to be able to really leverage and harness the cloud compute, the data, be able to do the machine learning, the artificial intelligence, all the things that we talk about, but how do that practical application We'll be so much further along that we will be able to have a true cloud marketplace that will be able to tailor and meet all of the different mission needs for the department. Danielle Metz, the Defense Department's Deputy CIO for Information Enterprise, talking with me about how DOD's multi-billion dollar JWCC contract is actually going to work. Much more of our conversation after a quick break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we return to our conversation with Danielle Metz, the Deputy DoD CIO for Information Enterprise, talking about how DoD's $9 billion enterprise cloud computing contract will work in practice. 
As she told us before the break, one of the major differences from the JEDI contract is that DOD really is not trying to displace the cloud contracts the military services have come up with on their own, at least not for now. The main focus, for starters, is what's often called the fourth estate. The idea of starting to deliver services to combatant commands and defense agencies and field activities first, I, I, I don't think I had heard that before, and that, that also seems like that's a change from the Jedi approach that, that y'all originally had a few years ago. Can you, can you talk a bit more about why those are the priority? Is that just where the unmet need is the largest at the moment? That is true. It is the where the unmet need is right now. Um, even with Jedi, as part of our early adopters, uh, they were just about all combat commands. We had a, a couple of services, and we also had a, a couple of, of DAFAs. So I think from when we came up with Jedi, when we had Jedi awarded, we were about to go on our go-live date back in February 2019. We had 12 early adopters. It was a good mix. Since that point on, uh, the landscape has changed. You know, Air Force went forward with Cloud One. Um, so they have shored up a lot of their um, discrete cloud efforts within the Air Force or the Department of Air Force, and now they have an enterprise contract of Cloud One. The Navy is doing the same for theirs, uh, really the Department of Navy, um, and the Army is as well. And what we don't have are the combat commands to have access, ubiquitous access to, to cloud, um, the cloud infrastructure and the associated services, and so too, nor do the DAFAs. And so that's the reason why it's really what we're targeting first, and then opening the door and allowing for the services when they have their unmet needs. Many don't have uh, Tactical Edge or uh, Aisle 6 or uh, Top Secret. They'll be able to use JWCC. But I think we really need to be able to focus in, and so it's the combatant commands. And you think about joining all the main C2, that's really going after the combatant commands. You think about what we're trying to do with AI and data acceleration, really targeting the combatant commands. Um, so we know we have critical infrastructure um, shortfalls and in, in cloud compute and the associated infrastructure is a big one that we need to fill for the uh, for the combatant commands. As you mentioned earlier, w when the JEDI procurement was still ongoing, there was a view, probably a correct view, that, that stitching together multiple CSPs into a coherent ecosystem was just going to be too hard. Um, any more you can say about why the department thinks that's changed at this point? And, and, and where I, where I want to get to with this question is, is, is it a clear objective with JWCC to have one thing that is a department-wide enterprise cloud, or is it really four different service offerings kind of doing their own thing and serving different needs? Yeah, so the way I look at it is that the JWCC is acting as that enterprise cloud uh, contract uh, construct so that once we have these awarded, it is open to the entire enterprise. All DoD components are able to leverage and use and to purchase and execute task orders against. That's not true for many of our other enterprise cloud contracts. They're either tailored to um, that specific organization or it's at the contracting officer's purview to allow um, by exception. And so that, to me, is honoring what we were trying to do with JEDI in terms of establishing something that everyone in the department would be able to use. Uh, the difference is just because of how uh, we evolve and mature, we didn't have much of a cloud presence um, uh, when we conceived JEDI. Uh, we had pockets of it, but we didn't have the robustness that we, we see now in, in 2020 to 2021. Um, and so I think that's the reason why we don't need to mandate um, JWCC, but there was a need to mandate JEDI back in the day. So you could just see how we are um, being very respectful of the fact of what the current landscape is and 
where the needs are and ensuring that we're um, we're targeting those needs and meeting those needs, but allowing it to be accessible um, to all DOD components, which I think is incredibly important. Given that that's the case and the military departments are going to be free to continue to use their own contracts for a while, it, is it a fair assumption that the total contract value for this is going to be probably substantially less than what was envisioned under JEDI? I don't know if you all have numerical estimates that you can share at this point. So I think it's out uh, uh, in public because it went out with a solicitation, but it's a, a $9 billion um, contract ceiling. Um, and so that accounts for um, all the services and infrastructure associated uh, with UNCLOS to um, top secret, the tactical edge, um, and accounts for the ability to have multiple offers. And so that's what we're looking for right now. That's the, the projection that we've uh, estimated. I also want to take a, a little bit of a step back and, and talk about, um, to the extent you can, how you landed on four vendors here. That it wasn't that long ago. It was just back in the summer where the department felt relatively strongly that there were only two companies that were going to be able to perform on this contract. I know you can't talk about individual companies' capabilities. I wouldn't expect you to, but can you say anything about what happened during that market research process that led you to expand the horizons a bit here? Yeah, and I think that's the reason why it was so important in our pre-solicitation. We said based on our current market research, we could see two uh, that met our, our requirements, but we were uh, we knew that we needed to conduct extensive market research and do uh, individual engagements with all five uh, U.S.-based hyperscale uh, CSPs, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, the team engaged multiple rounds, um, had some fulsome conversations, reviewed capabilities, timelines, um, and based on that body of work, that drove to the recommendation and then eventually uh, the decision to do the direct solicitations to the four. Um, so that's why it was so critical to do the market research. Um, we wanted to take the time to be able to do that. And I'm, I'm very pleased that we did because I think it's going to yield us better results. And now based on the fact that there are four companies or, or we assume that there are going to be four awards here, I don't think that's a complete certainty yet here. I guess there there could be a company that doesn't get an award, even though they've been issued a solicitation. So, yeah, you're correct. Yeah. So just because you get a direct solicitation does not mean that you're going to get an award. So we're still going through the process. Um, but I think it's, we just need to make that very clear. Uh, just because you have a direct solicitation does not mean you're going to get a, a direct award. Sure. Um, but, but okay, so assuming we have multiple companies in play here, when it comes time to actually order services, if I'm, let's say, the Defense Logistics Agency, can I, can I say I would like to order X number of units of this particular type of Oracle service, or do I need to submit a more vague requirement that then goes into this disagonculator that tells me what I'm getting back? So uh, using your example for, for DLA, DLA will partner with the JWCC PMO. They have a customer engagement team. Uh, they will review the requirements uh, and then the uh, JWCC PMO customer engagement team will work very closely with DLA to make sure that they are tailoring the requirements in a manner that meets their mission need. And then that is what will go into the automated provisioning tool to be able to execute and compete that uh, task order. If, I, if, I, if I'm the CIO of one of these agencies, though, and I know with certainty that this is the exact cloud service from this company that I want, Will I ultimately be able to get that? 
I think it's premature for me to say that. Uh, I think that's the reason why we want to make sure that we have, um, it's all about the requirements. So um, tailoring the requirements to be able to meet the mission's need is, is critical. And that partnership with whomever the mission owner is, working with the JWCC program office that will have the technical acumen to be able to help shepherd that through and then executing it through the provisioning tool is how I envision all of this taking place. The, the one piece that we haven't gotten to yet about JWCC, and I think one of the ways it differs from some of the contracts that are out there already, is the multiple classification domains that you're going to start offering here relatively quickly. Can, can you talk about what, what sorts of services at those at those different levels are going to be available and how soon you think you can get them going? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, aisle five, up to aisle five, that's what we call unclassified. We'll have a cross-domain solution for aisle six, which is uh, secret, cross-domain solution, uh, top secret, and then the tactical I should be able to uh, to complement all that. And those cross-domain solutions are incredibly important because that is how you're going to be able to move data up and back down depending on where it needs to go and, and who needs access to it. Um, and so this is something that and th is supporting underlying cybersecurity infrastructure to be able to support what I just said, because I obviously made that sound very easy. Um, but that's exactly what needs to take place. And right now, that is what is missing from the department's ability to uh, to do join all domain C2 and um, the vision that Secretary Hicks has with uh, the AI and data acceleration. That portability across domains, obviously super important. What about portability across providers? Is there going to be specific language in the requirements of these contracts that it's seamless between various CSPs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's the key, the, the portability uh, across and amongst and within. Um, because we know that we're going to be in it, and we already are, but we know that with what we're putting forward with JWCC, that we're going to be in a multi-cloud environment, and we still need to behave and 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 work as a joint uh, unit, um, as a joint, joint workforce. And, be, and it shouldn't be uh, independent of where our data is in the cloud. That is just a mechanism for us to be able to safely, securely, and um, confidentially move our data to be able to execute the mission that we need to do. That that. Technology is obviously available, but it's not easy. Um, is the government yeah. going to be the integrator to pull those various CSP service offerings together? Are you going to rely on third-party integrators? Do you know yet? Uh, so we're uh, the the JWCC Program Management Office, which is the HAC, will have the responsibility of being the integrator for this and working very closely with the CSPs that uh, do receive the direct awards to be able to make that happen. And that was the vision that we had when it was JEDI, and at the time, the JEDI PMO, which was called the CCPO. Um, slightly finer point on that. It, it, is it going to be somewhat incumbent on the cloud service providers themselves to play play nicely with each other, or is the government going to be building pipes? That's really my question. So I think we're still working through that. Um, so I don't have a very good answer for that, but I do understand the, the, the nuance that you just provided. That's something that we have to work through. I just don't have a very good answer right now. Danielle Metz, DOD's Deputy CIO for Information Enterprise. Again, that's from an exclusive interview we had in December about how the up to $9 billion joint warfighter cloud capability contracts will work over the coming years. I thought it was informative. Hopefully you did too. We'll take another break here, and when we come back, some of the Pentagon Inspector General's top priorities for overseeing DOD in the coming year. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu.
Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. And when you oversee an enterprise as big as the Defense Department, you need a plan. That's what the Office of the Inspector General does every year, develop a plan for the year ahead. The OIG's 2022 plan is out now, and for some of the highlights, my colleague Tom Temin talked with Courtney Phones. She heads up the OIG team that examines the department's top management challenges each year. Let's begin with, you have really two documents here that are just out. One is the oversight plan of the OIG. The other is the OIG's assessment of the top management challenges for DOD in the year ahead. Safe to say then that the plan derives from what you see as the main challenges. It certainly is. Our management challenges are the Inspector General's independent assessment of the DOD's top performance and management challenges. Some of these challenges are going to be longstanding, while others are more emergent, and some have been reshaped from previous years. We essentially discuss what our current challenges are, we brainstorm some new topics, and that arrives us at our final decision for what our overall challenge topics will be, and that becomes the framework for our oversight plan. As we develop our oversight plan, we consider a lot of different things. We consider our previous work, any gaps in coverage we may have identified. We also look at the work of others in the oversight community, such as the Government Accountability Office or the service audit agencies and service inspector generals. We also get input from DOD senior leaders, and we get input from Congress, and we consider what the statutory requirements might be that we have to address in the upcoming year. So the documents are kind of developed concurrently. Ultimately, we want to make sure that our oversight projects align with those management challenges. Sure. So it sounds like this also then is a great blueprint for the department employees themselves, the OIG office employees, so they know what's going to happen in the next 12 months or so. Exactly. And they play a big role in developing what those projects will be based on their own expertise and experience. And with respect to the GAO, they get their requests from Congress to do look-sees at different programs. So do you try to avoid what you know they're looking at, or do you maybe try to pile on with what they're looking at? We take an approach of de-conflicting with the Government Accountability Office, so we want to make sure that we're not duplicating the same work that they're doing. We may, like you said, go in a little bit deeper on a topic, or we may choose to push that topic to a later date because the Government Accountability Office is looking at it already. Sure. And with each of the 10 challenges areas that you have identified, and they pretty much cover the gamut, do you know how many actual reports those will generate? Because each one of those could be probably any number of individual program look-sees. Yes. So our oversight plan is a living document. So it's designed to be flexible. In any given year, we may be announcing some projects at the beginning of the year, some at the end of the year, and we leave room for emerging requirements and topics that we may not have planned for or have foreseen. So we give ourselves the flexibility to add projects that we may need and push projects that maybe it's not the best time to do those as we originally thought. Yeah, that was my question. I guess you've answered it, but I want to double down on it a little bit, is that things happen in something as large as DOD. Two Navy ships ram each other, or Air Force accidentally flies an atom bomb, you know, from base to base, and they shouldn't have, this kind of thing. I'm just mentioning things that have happened in recent years. And so you've got to have some wiggle room to be able to jump on emergencies, correct? 
That's 100% correct. And, uh, you know, for example, in August, we announced a project about the Afghan evacuation. That's an emerging topic that we decided to announce a project on and really get right on board with that immediately, right in August as it was happening. And we have already issued a few management advisory memos on that topic that are available on our public site. And how good is the cooperation in general that you get? Because this varies for IGs across the different agencies and departments. But with DOD people knowing in advance what you're going to be looking at, do they circle the wagons or do they say, okay, let's get prepared for this look at and, you know, be ready for it and help out the IG? I mean, the DOD generally cooperates with us. We have engagement with the DOD at all levels, you know, all levels internal to our organization and in their organization. So we are working with them a lot on research, on outreach, to make sure they know what we're going to be working on and how we're going to scope what we're looking on so they're prepared. And we have definitely seen progress in DOD cooperation with us. One of the ways we measure progress is through our Compendium of Open Recommendations, a report that we publish annually. Within that report, we've seen that DOD has been implementing more of our recommendations, and they've been resolving more of our recommendations, which is a great sign that the DOD is taking what we've reported on and acting upon it. Yeah, that's always a good feeling. We're speaking with Courtney Phone. She's the Management Challenges Lead in the Office of Inspector General at the Defense Department. And I just wanted to ask you just to maybe outline what you're looking for in a couple of the strategic areas. We don't have time to do all of them, but the topic of strategic competition, which leads your lists of challenges and where you're going to be looking, what is going on there? What are you going to be focusing on, do you think? So the focus of that challenge is really the continuing shift from counterterrorism to strategic competition against near-peer adversaries. That challenge specifically this year, we talk a lot about China and Russia. They're expanding influence and aggression, economic and militarily. We talk about deterrence and the DOD maintaining a competitive advantage against those adversaries. So we talk about reaffirming and rebuilding existing alliances and partnerships, and then also building new alliances and partnerships. And do you look also at how the program activities and how the budget allocations measure against the stated purpose? I believe we have audits that will look at audits and evaluations or oversight work together or audits and evaluations. We look at funding streams and we look at how those impact the specific programs and processes that we do. Yeah, just to make an extreme example, if you're worried about China and you spend most of the money building a base in, I don't know, southern France, I realize that's an absurd example, but that would be a sign that budget and stated goals aren't in alignment. Sure. We do have projects. For example, we have an ongoing project related to the European Command where we're looking at the training ranges in that area to make sure that our soldiers, airmen, and sailors are ready to fight when they need to against any potential threats that are in that area of responsibility, just as an example of the type of work that we would be doing that kind of looks at that. All right. Another area is strengthening DOD cyberspace. And of course, cyber is the question for every federal entity these days. And what do you see ahead looking at that front? So with this challenge about DOD cyberspace operations, it is also about keeping pace with adversaries, similar to the previous challenge that we discussed. A key attribute of cybersecurity is called cyber hygiene. This is just the basic internal controls that keep a system safe. And the DOD wants to make sure that it's protecting internal systems and its external systems. We do this by identifying and mitigating vulnerabilities 
And then for external systems, the DOD actually has a new certification program that looks at contractor systems to make sure that we're securing our information on those systems. So this is you know, similar in line to the challenge that we see in one, where we want to make sure that we are maintaining a competitive advantage against our adversaries. The other one I thought interesting was the issue of preserving trust and confidence in the DOD. I think the surveys show the American public has a high degree of confidence or admiration in the armed services, maybe not so much in the department as a whole. And so what will you be looking at on that area? So with the Preserving Trust and Confidence Challenge, we are really focused on three critical issues. We're looking at sexual harassment and sexual assault. We're looking at disparate treatment and then also extremism in the DOD. What we take a look at are what are the DOD's actions in those critical areas and how do those actions affect, like you said, the public's perception, but also the perception that uniformed personnel have of the department altogether. As you know, sexual harassment and sexual assault are a persistent challenge for the DOD, and they continue to struggle to combat that. And so it's a really important topic that we want to make sure we're highlighting. And on the extremism front, I guess the question arises, even if someone is extremist in their views, if they don't exercise or act on those views, but simply do as they're supposed to as good members of the military, does it really matter? Is that the kind of question you'd be looking at? We want to make sure that there are mechanisms in place for the DOD and for uniformed personnel to be able to report and identify any extremist behaviors they may observe. And what we want to make sure is that any investigative process into those actions is transparent and accountable. All right. And then the other area I wanted to ask you about is financial management. That's also been an ongoing challenge with DOD inching, it seems, closer to that clean audit and that full accountability on the financial front. Do you think this will be the year it occurs? I think this is a long marathon and not a sprint for the Department of Defense. It is definitely, as you said, a long-standing challenge. It is a very important challenge, though. The department needs to be a good steward of taxpayer money, and the way they can demonstrate that is through financial statements that they receive a clean audit opinion on. You know, that means that the financial statements are presented fairly and they're in accordance with accounting principles. So as you said, we are seeing some progress. They've been implementing recommendations and they've been improving some business practices and processes. Do you like your work? I do. I think the DOD Office of Inspector General is an amazing place to work, and we have a very important mission. It is hard to beat the mission that we have, you know, which is to detect and deter fraud, waste, and abuse, promote economy efficiency and effectiveness, and help ensure ethical conduct throughout the DOD. I'm very lucky to work here, and I've worked here for 18 years, and I'm happy to continue to do so. All right, great. And one other question. Will you be hiring staff for the OIG? What's the personnel situation there these days? As my senior leaders would reiterate, we are always looking for great personnel, highly qualified, diverse team of folks who are excited about the mission. And we have active job announcements that are out on USA Jobs for anyone who is interested. They can also look for us on LinkedIn. That's Courtney Phones, the Management Challenges Lead within the DOD Inspector General's Office, talking with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. One more pause, and when we come back, how the Army's Emergency Relief Program is expanding its horizons beyond just emergencies. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio.
back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Army Emergency Relief provides grants and interest-free loans to soldiers who need a little help. The organization is now investing in the Army's Career Skills Program. The initiative pairs soldiers with jobs in the civilian world, but it has a few financial barriers. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni talked about it with Army Emergency Relief Financial Assistance Administrator Scott Wilder. When General Oriana was the chief of staff of the Army, you know, a lot was being talked about at the time of uh, veteran homelessness, veteran unemployment. And basically, the chief kind of stepped up and said, it's time to fix it and stop talking about it. So, stood up a program, an organization called the Army Soldier for Life Program. Uh, and then I would just say, working with the Soldier for Life Program and outlying communities, not exactly sure who came up with the idea, but around the 2015 mark, uh, a program, the program, the Career Skills Program was created. And the purpose of the Career Skills Program was really, in a sense, to find meaningful employment for veterans to be able to move, you know, on past the Army, post-Army, you know, and be a successful citizen uh, in their communities. And, and you know, the biggest, one of the biggest stressors for soldiers leaving the service is money. So, you know, and to find that, that next bit of employment, because they're, in a sense, having to find a new identity uh, with getting out of the Army. It's pretty set for you while you're in the Army, but once you get out, you got to kind of you know, hopefully you've done some thinking and you got to realize, you know, what is that next move going to be? So this was just something to help them out, uh, to get them not just a job. You know, some guy gets a, gets out and is looking for work and it's not meaningful and it doesn't pay enough. You know, so this, this and that's not always the case, but this job, this, this program was set up to bring organizations or companies in and they train service members on specific skills that they could use at their place of employment. So if I'm whatever corporation, Corporation X coming in, I, I, I'm basically going to hire those people. I'm going to offer, I'm going to offer uh, employment to those people, all these soldiers who've completed the program. And what this does, I mean, really, it's it's good for the army, but it's also good for the corporation. They're getting, you know, pretty skilled service members who have a lot of qualities that. And then, you know, the great part, like I said, they, they bring on about the higher rates. As a little while ago, it was around 90 to 93% was the higher rate. And could you give us an idea of the range of, of businesses that are, are working in this program? And then also maybe some of the types of skills that soldiers learn as they're transitioning out? It can range anywhere from truck driving to mechanics to body repair to computer programming. I mean, there's just... A range of things and, and they're changing a lot as well. I know there was some in the uh, aviation department where it was working with mechanics and AER is doing this three million dollar investment. How does this work and it, does it go toward the soldiers like a scholarship kind of thing or is this going to, to grow the program or where is this three million dollars going to be going? So the way that it works is uh, we kind of broke it down into different categories, if you will, you know, so you have, so for these career skills program, programs, what's great is there, there's a, most of them are located on military installations. And the way when it initially, this program started, so say that I'm stationed on Fort Bragg, the only CSP program at the time that they could attend was on Fort Bragg. And the reason for that is they, there was no policy in place that would allow them to take off more than basically 20 days unless they wanted to burn their own leave uh, to go to these career skills programs on other posts. 
So just basically through time and a lot of effort, you know, between AMCOM and, and Army G1, they got a, I think it's called administrative absence now. They can be gone for up to 180 days, I believe is the time. So we, we had broken down the amount that we give based on where the soldier's from and where the training is occurring. So The $3 million was kind of a ballpark number, if you will. We weren't exactly sure where this was going to go or how far it would take off. And and the numbers have fluctuated a little bit in the last year, but uh, or in the last few years since inception. So we were kind of just throwing a ballpark number out there to to get started as at least a minimum commitment, if you will. And I have a feeling that uh, we'll probably surpass that amount because this is something we're not going to shut off. So the way that it works, if a soldier's on Fort Bragg, and he attends the training on Fort Bragg. So he's stationed on Fort Bragg, attends the training on Fort Bragg. He can receive up to $500. And all this money literally goes straight to the soldier. So if it's a soldier on Fort Bragg, stationed on Fort Bragg, attending a CSP on Fort Bragg, we give up to a $500 grant. Uh, and uh, if it's a soldier who's stationed on Fort Bragg going up to JBLM, you know, across country or any other post, you know, I'm just using those as generals, as any other from post, one post to a different post, we will give them up to a thousand dollar grant. If it's a soldier who's overseas, and this is one of the biggest issues for overseas soldiers, is transitioning out of the army is tough. It's tougher than anywhere else, uh, you know, in the army. It's tougher than all the Kona soldiers. So, you know, a lot of these soldiers that are in over in Europe and Japan and all these other other locations, like that when they want to do a CSP, they're really limited. I think there's some like some computer programming. I think Microsoft might have had something over there, but it's it's like things they can do on the computer right there. So in-class training was very difficult for them. So what we're offering to them is $1,500 to help with uh, costs as a grant. And this, and we know this does not cover all expenses. We know that the money we give them is to assist in, to assist with those associated costs to the CSP. Those funds go to buying supplies, they go to lodging, or you know, how can they use those funds that you've granted them? So there's some courses that require some materials, like say tools, or they want them to show up in business attire, you know, or something like that. So really when they request, they might come with, um, for any type of travel expense, food, fuel, airfare, you know, we can, we can, they can, we give them the $500 for what they requested for. So food, fuel, food, fuel, airfare is one to travel to get there. If they need tools for the program or specific items for the for the csp we give them the money to purchase it any business attire we give them money to purchase it and then another nice thing that we're doing now is if they say they go through the csp training and they get offered that job and they're moving to their new location we will help with some of those move costs but it still stays at that five hundred thousand fifteen hundred dollar amount and and I, and to just kind of be a little specific on that, in a sense, it's five hundred dollars for the whole program. So, say if a guy makes two requests, he's a local CSP, which is a five hundred dollar max. His two requests cannot exceed a total of five hundred dollars. If that makes sense. Could you tell us what AER is and what their mission is, what your mission is, and how to help soldiers? Overall, the goal of AER is to assist service members. Uh, retired service members and their families to include survivors with assistance in times of, if you will, urgent need or desperation, or, you know, we really are a ever evolving organization, in my opinion, you know, we have, we're up, I think we have 34 categories of assistance now that range all the way from 
you know, auto repairs to housing to helping with soldiers with PCSing now from one post to another because there's this tremendous backlog they've had in the Army to, you know, just all those basic living expenses, funerals, you know, and we, we provide assistance in the form of uh, loans, grants, or a combination of a loan grant based on the financial situation of each person that we're dealing with. That's Scott Wilder, Financial Assistance Administrator at Army Emergency Relief, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Earlier on this hour, you heard from Courtney Phones, the Management Challenges Lead within the DOD Inspector General's Office, about the OIG's oversight plan for the coming year. And before that, an extended discussion about DOD's forthcoming JWCC cloud contracts in an exclusive interview with Danielle Metz, the Deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise. If you missed any of the show this week, you could find the whole thing, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com or get it in your podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.